Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11 again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read the same passage that we read before. uh, These verses dealing with the subject of the Lord's table. And at least um, what we normally refer to as the words of institution. But we'll read this whole passage, this whole section where the Apostle Paul is dealing with this in the Corinthian church and giving instructions in how things in the church should go, how things should operate. And you hopefully will remember uh, back from our study in the early part of 1 Corinthians 11 when we were dealing with the subject of head coverings that this whole section from chapter 7 all the way to the end of chapter 14 is really dealing with questions that come up in the context of the church and how things should be done and handled in the church. And Paul's conclusion at the whole thing, at the end of chapter 14, is to just simply let all things be done decently and in order. And that's how it's to be done, decently and in order. And one of the things that's done is the Lord's table. And so what we're going to be looking at today is what to do during the Lord's table. Last week, we were looking at the larger catechism question of what to do before the Lord's table. So preparing our hearts leading up to it. Today, it's what to do as it's actually being administered during that communion service. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll come to that larger catechism question that deals with what are we to do in the aftermath of the Lord's table, when it's over. Uh, the the hours and and days following, where should our mind be? But let's read this in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse number 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What praise shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest I will set in order when I come. And so, um, if you look at your notes here, just really diving right into this next question. Question number 174 deals with this subject of what are we to do during the Lord's Supper. And so the question uh, that's asked there is, what is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? And so the answer, we can, you can follow along as I read that, it said it's, it is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. And so quite a lengthy answer, but basically it deals with all the things that should be going through our mind, our actions, our attitudes, and all this as we partake of the Lord's table. And so just like we did last week with the other uh, answer to question 172, um, I want to just break this down into its individual parts. And so that's what you'll see in your notes. The Roman numerals um, have broken down each of the individual parts of this answer into its various parts. So the first one is to wait on God in that ordinance. That's the first thing we're to do during the Lord's table. Now, to wait on God is a phrase that was often used by the, by the Puritans, and it really was just another word that they used for praying. To wait on the Lord is to pray. And so from that sense, you know, we've all had some situation where we're supposed to meet somebody and we had to wait for them. And 25 years ago, when you waited on somebody, you didn't have anything to do. Now you check Facebook, and so you're doing something while you're waiting. But theoretically, while you're waiting, you're, you're kind of not doing anything. You're just waiting. There's nothing going on. You're just waiting. Well, that's not the idea here at all. It's not that when we are partaking of the Lord's table. Now, remember, this is like while it's happening. This is during the communion service, uh, as the elements are distributed, etc. Uh, we are to wait on God. We are to seek him in prayer. So you think about the time when Christ instituted that supper with his disciples. They were at a table eating and drinking with him. They were involved in that moment in fellowship and communion with the Lord. And he was there physically and visibly present among them. He was literally sitting at the same table. And so from that perspective, they were able to speak to the Lord face to face at that very first communion. 
But for us, we deal with that differently in that Christ is not physically and visibly present at the Lord's table. But from a Reformed perspective, what we understand the Scriptures teach is that Christ is spiritually present at the Lord's table. And prayer is the way that we spiritually communicate with the Lord. And as I put here at the end of that first paragraph uh, on your notes, very practically speaking, that is one of the reasons why it's important to pray before and during, and this is what we're looking at now, during the communion service. Now, in our church, we just think about the way we do things, and Pastor Kimbrough from day one of this church ever existing, when they did communion, as the elements are distributed, we are singing a hymn. Now, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, because even in the hymns that are selected, there are thoughts in those hymns appropriate to the context of the Lord's table. And so, as our minds are focused on those hymns, the elements are distributed. But I think you may remember, it's been five, maybe six years ago, um, that we made a change. It used to be that we, were, we would sing the hymn, and then immediately would, it would go into the... Pastor Kimbrough would pray himself publicly for the congregation, read the words of institution, and then we would partake of the elements. Well, about five or six years ago, we inserted a short time of personal prayer. And we did that on purpose because it is a necessary part of our partaking of the Lord's table. And so we sing that hymn, the elements are distributed, you're, you're holding the bread or you're holding the cup, and then we have a moment of silent prayer. And so what do you do during that moment of silent prayer? Well, you're not thinking about tomorrow, or I mean, you're not supposed to be thinking about tomorrow, you're not supposed to be planning you know, some other thing, it is literally time to pray, to seek the Lord. Even if you're not, if you're a younger person that doesn't partake of the Lord's table physically, you're still involved in the same thing. Your, your mindset and your focus really should be in that same place. You are observing the Lord's table being taken, but you can still, in a spiritual sense, participate in that in waiting on the Lord. We, if I can maybe take a, a different nuance on the word wait, you don't wait on somebody that you don't think is coming. If, you, if you're pretty convinced that they're not going to show up, you stop waiting, right? you leave, you, you go on home. You know, I've had that with testing customers here or whatever. It comes to the, you know, the end of the day and it's the last person and they're five minutes late. They're ten minutes late. I've called. I've sent them a text message. I get no response. I get nothing. Then, you know, how long do you sit? How long do I sit here and, and just wait for somebody to show up that I've had no communication with? They're not returning my calls. They're not responding to a text message. I haven't heard anything from them. You give up. He's, I, I just go home. I don't wait anymore. Well, that waiting on the Lord, you wait for somebody that you're convinced is going to show up. Well, I don't say that lightly, but 
We have every reason to believe from the promises of Christ in the Scriptures that when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord is going to show up. This is a place that he's promised to meet with us. Because remember, if we kind of zoom out to the bigger umbrella of this, this is a means of grace. And God has promised to meet with his people in the means of grace. And so we wait for the Lord. We pray, we seek him in that. So the second one, if you turn your page into the top of page two, the second point here, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. I just repeat the language that's in the larger catechism there. But it doesn't take a lot of spiritual sense to realize that the Lord's Supper is not a real supper in the sense that there's not enough food there to sustain you. This is one of the criticisms. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, this is one of the criticisms that the Apostle Paul made to the Corinthian church is that they were turning the Lord's Supper into this big inappropriate and inordinate feasting time and there were some that were feasting to the point of even drunkenness. And Paul's like, no, you're, you're, that's not right at all. You don't, you don't go there. This is a spiritual meal, but also it's a symbolic meal. And so, you know, the, the argument in the Reformation between, for example, Luther and Zwingli was what did Jesus mean when he held up that piece of bread and he said this is my body and that's been the debate of the bread between the Roman Catholic Church the Lutheran Church and the Protestant churches for hundreds of years right the Roman Catholic Church they interpret this is my body in the most literal possible sense. And so in the, the Mass, you know where the, the magician gets the term hocus pocus from? Hocus pocus is actually part of the Latin language that's used during the Mass. And it's the word that's used when the, the bread is transformed into the body of Christ. That's part of the Latin that, that's in that, hocus pocus, basically. But the Roman Catholic Church practices really what amounts to cannibalism because they believe that that bread has literally turned into the body of Jesus. And in the Catholic documents in um, Second Vatican Council, the Council of Trent, some of these other documents that deal with communion and the Lord's table and, and getting to some of the practical things... They have rules in their parishes of what to do if it's discovered that a mouse has gotten into the bread. Now you got a mouse that ate Jesus. I mean, this is what this is the, the literalness that they take um, for that. Well, we don't take that literal sense, but we take the plain common sense of what Jesus said when he said, This is my body. This is something that represents me. It represents the, the body of Jesus, the bread of life. And so the two sacramental elements, the bread I've talked about, and then the cup. You know, this is my personal opinion. And even when 
even when we were in Georgia, I really didn't do this. I didn't do it, I guess, simply because I've, I've never been in a place where I've seen it done. Maybe some of you have gone to churches or you've been in a communion service where the minister will take a physical loaf of bread and break it in half for everybody to see, to break it. Well, that's what Jesus did. At, at the very first communion, it's not like he brought special stuff with him for this, like he had a little satchel with his communion supplies. You understand that, I hope. They had just eaten the Passover meal. And at the Passover meal, they had whatever loaves were on the table at that Passover meal. Judas left, and after Judas left, Jesus addressed the other 11 and he picked up one of the pieces of bread that was on the table. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he was, he was teaching them something. He was demonstrating something to them. And, and there was a, a visual aspect of that as well. Now, is it necessary to do? No. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen it done other than heard people talk about doing it. But to me, it makes sense to be done. Um, This is just another aside. My personal opinion, I don't think it makes any difference whether you use leavened or unleavened bread. I don't think that's the point either. Um, Some people are very strict on that. You have to use unleavened bread. Um, But I know of other ministers that are very insistent on the fact that you use regular bread, not unleavened bread. Um, I don't think that necessarily matters. I mean, we use many saltine crackers, so <laughs> I don't know if those have yeast in them or not. I don't think they do. But, you know, we don't use, you know, like Baptist communion wafers and, and that kind of thing. But that's really not the point. Observing the sacramental element is really more of a spiritual thing, and, and we're going to get into that in point number three Uh, heedfully discerning the Lord's body when we get there. But the sacramental part of it is understanding the spiritual nature of what's going on and also understanding that these are sacramental actions. And so the, the language of the catechism is to diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, understanding this bread broken for you. Um, you know, maybe there, maybe there is something to the visual of broken pieces, even if it's, you know, even if we have a, a rel, regular saltine cracker that we have broken up in the plate. There, there's something about that. That's the point of what we're to be thinking about, that Christ's body was broken. That's part of the sacramental action. The cup, we don't pour stuff out anywhere, and again, that's not the point. But that cup, that juice, that red juice, Part of the sacramental action of that is to draw our mind and our attention to the shedding of the blood of Jesus, obviously. And so this is a fellowship meal. Part of this sacramental action, too, is the fellowship together of the Lord's people. I don't know if you've ever been in a church um, in Vancouver. I remember the first communion service we were at in Vancouver the elements were distributed, and I don't think I helped, I guess, 
But I remember Lydia and I were sitting there waiting for Pastor Gallagher to, you know, read the thing and, and say the prayer and everybody partake. Well, then I realized everybody already had. And so they would take it from the plate and they would take it immediately. They didn't wait for everybody to take it together. Is that wrong? Maybe not wrong. But I think there is something to be said of the fellowship aspect and the communion aspect of the Lord's table. That it is, it is one act of communion. And I mean, you think about a meal at your house. You know, when, when the food is passed around, you know, the host will normally, I guess, most of the time say, no, you guys go ahead and eat. Don't wait. But it's the polite thing to wait until, you know, like the food's been passed and, and people have, you know, basically gotten at least most of their food around the table before you start to, you know, dig into your food. It's a polite thing to wait because you're fellowshipping together, you're eating together, you're partaking of this together rather than just diving in yourself, right? That's, you know, at, at, at a dinner, that's an impolite thing to do. I think it would be even more in the context of the Lord's table when we're all together fellowshipping and communing. And so the third one is to heedfully discern the Lord's body. And in that, what we're focusing on is the fact that this piece of bread is more than just a piece of bread. But it's just a piece of bread. But it's more than just a piece of bread. It, it represents something more than just a piece of bread. It has a significance to it that's different than just any old ordinary piece. And that cup is... I mean, it's just Welch's grape juice, and I do have a thing on that. You're not allowed to use generic grape juice at the Lord's table. You have to use Welch's grape juice. That's my opinion. Take it for what it's worth, but that's just a thing that I stand by. You can argue with me if you want, but you have to use Welch's. But you use a, it, it's just Welch's grape juice, but it's not. It's more than that. It's, it's spiritually something different than that that we're to recognize and that's what we're talking about of the, the heedfully discerning the Lord's body. This is one of the primary reasons why we don't have children, young children, coming to the Lord's table. Because there needs to be a, a connection with what's taking place. Th this is a controversial thing. There are some churches that would not allow the mentally handicapped to the Lord's table, those that aren't mentally able to discern the Lord's body. Now, I admit that's a, it's a very sensitive um, and can be a very controversial topic. Uh, the PCA, if you're ever interested in reading something about it, our, our denomination has not addressed any of that in print th that I know of. I don't know, I don't know of any of our ministers that have ever addressed this. But I know the PCA has some documents that they have addressed the issue of the mentally handicapped coming to the Lord's table and their ability to discern the Lord's body. And one of their main arguments is that salvation is not an act of the intellect, 
that salvation is not primarily an intellectual decision. It is a work of grace in the heart. And if the elders and the leadership of the church can discern from that person's um, testimony and, you know, the, the language and what they talk about is, you know, people that are mentally handicapped are not going to express things the same way that you or I would. But if the leadership of the church discerns a work of grace in the heart, a I love Jesus attitude from that individual, um, whether it be, you know, severe Down syndrome or, you know, you name the, the handicapped or the disability, they make provision for those people taking the Lord's table. I think that's appropriate. I think that's the right decision to make, the right thing to do. Um, but I also stand by the, in normal circumstances, young children that aren't able to discern between cracker and, you know, church snack time and really the, the importance of what's taking place, they should not come to the Lord's table. That's part of heedfully discerning the Lord's body. But this also implies an understanding of Scripture. If we're to heedfully discern the Lord's body, it does imply, it does have something in it of understanding some doctrine of Scripture. That we're not discerning a Jesus of our own imagination. We're discerning Christ as he's presented to us in the Scriptures. Uh, that one who is the eternal Son of God who took to himself flesh, that, that lived in humanity on this earth, that was born of a woman, that humbled himself, etc. Those doctrines of Scripture. Now that doesn't mean one has to you know, rise to some you know, theological level. You know, we're not giving people a theology exam necessarily before they partake of the Lord's table. <coughs> but it does imply in the maturing of one's faith, in the maturing of one's understanding of Scripture, everything that's going on. You know, if I can put it to you this way, you adults and older ones, and even you younger ones still, but you know, us older ones, I hope that you understand more of the significance of the Lord's table now than you did 20 years ago. You, know, you theoretically have grown in grace. You, you've grown in a mature more full understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And from that perspective, I hope 20 years from now, I've grown and know more than I do now. Right? We're, this is a, a process of, of spiritual growth, all in discerning the Lord's body. And then the fourth one <coughs> is affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings. Now, there's obviously a lot of overlap here in what we're talking about because when we're praying, what are we praying about? Is that clock? That clock's working. When we pray, what are we praying about? Well, in a sense, we're we're praying, offering thanks for the work of Christ, his broken body and his shed blood. When we're diligently observing these sacramental elements, we're discerning that this is more than bread. This is more than juice. When you know, heedfully discerning the Lord's body, we're we're doing the same. So obviously, a lot of overlap here. But here, in affectionately meditating on His death and sufferings, the death and sufferings of Christ 
obviously have something to do with his body as well. And the main focus here is on the blood that was shed because it was your sin, it was my sin that made it necessary for Christ to shed his blood. Because what do the scriptures teach us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. In the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, there was the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. We can go back to the very, very first picture of that, foreshadowing of it, if you will, with the Lord making clothes of skin for Adam and Eve in the garden. Something had to die. There had to be the death of the innocent to cover the sin of the guilty. And I've not skinned that many animals. You've probably skinned more. Sheila's probably skinned more animals than any of the rest of us here. Um, But it's rather difficult to skin an animal without blood somewhere, right? I mean, I guess you could be very, very, very careful. But there's blood involved in getting a coat of skin. And so that's the first foreshadowing of the aspect of blood being shed for the remission of sins. And the wrath of God cannot be appeased any other way. It just simply can't happen. And so as we meditate on these things and afresh come face to face with the fact that none of this would have been necessary had sin not entered into the world, and death by sin, and death reigning upon all men, and I'm a sinner, and it's, it's my sin that required this death. I participated in, in the need for Christ to, to die, and we meditate on those things. And then we'll move on to the last one, and that is stir up ourselves to a vigorous exercise of various graces. And so if you remember last week, uh, the way I put that one point is um, you know, about these various graces. And so the catechism lists a whole, a whole string of these. And fo- so the first one, A, <coughs> excuse me, A, is in judging ourselves and sorrowing for sin. And so I asked the question earlier about, you know, when you're praying, what is it that you are to be praying for? Well, a prayer of thanksgiving, yes. But remember, when we were talking last week about preparing for the Lord's table, we also pray. And in that preparing for the Lord's table before, part of that praying is a searching of our heart. You know, David's prayer, see if there be any wicked way in me. We're confessing sin prior to coming to the Lord's table, yet even in in the taking of the Lord's table, even in those few moments that we sing, and I mentioned this earlier, these few moments between that and Pastor Kimbrough praying and reading the words of institution, that's still a time of personal examining of yourself. And in these various graces, judging ourselves and sorrowing for sin, repenting of known sin. Let me be careful here. Uh, this, this is 
one of the things that I personally have struggled with. Um, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm not. I don't think I am. How many times do you need to repent of sin? Somebody answer that. One time, right? But yet, how many times do you repent of sin? Over and over and over again. Why? Why do we ask forgiveness for the same thing over and over and over again? Well, if the Lord has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, if he's promised in Scripture, I will remember them no more, you know, if you're repenting of something the second time, please understand, I'm not trying to be flippant and, and silly in this, but you know, there's a sense in which the Lord doesn't know what you're talking about. You're done with that. You've already repented of that. And so, you know, God could say, what are you talking about? We've already dealt with that. You move on to the next thing. And, I mean, if you're like me, there's plenty of other things to repent of. I don't need to repent of old things twice. I've got new stuff to repent of. Right? And so we've got plenty of stuff to repent of. But, you know, this is a Sunday school lesson on repentance. We don't need to ask forgiveness twice for the same thing. If you've repented of it and, and before the Lord, you're forgiven. Move on. Go to the next thing. And I think, I think that's where so many Christians labor under so much guilt. Because Satan is the one that will plague your mind with sins from 20 years ago. I don't know why I'm on 20 years tonight, today, but... You know, he'll plague your mind with stuff from forever ago and bring that back up. It's like, I can't believe. Why did I do that? That's stupid. And Lord, forgive. Well, no, he forgave you 20 years ago. Move on. Go to the next thing. But we, 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 we make that mistake there. But in this judging ourselves, there is that, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Is there some new thing that I'm blind to? And we're often blind to our own sin because we've self-justified it and so we've convinced ourselves it's not sin. But judging ourselves, sorrowing for sin. Uh, the second one, an earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ. I put kind of just a searching rhetorical question in your notes there. Do you ever look forward to the Lord's table? You know, have we ever finished the Lord's table and you've lamented that I have to wait a whole month to do this again? Do we think that way? But there is an earnest and hungering and thirsting after the Lord. See, again, we're a various exercise of these graces, and that is feeding on Christ by faith. We are to look by faith to the promises of redemption in the gospel. And so part of our, our meditation in this is, as we're meditating on the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, part of our meditation is on the benefits of that, what we refer to often as the benefits of redemption. Um, if you jot down Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, um, that, that's uh, just a quick passage that really outlines the benefits of redemption, all that accrues to us in the gospel because of what Christ has done for us. And then D, receiving of Christ's fullness. 
Uh, put in your notes there Colossians 2, 6 to 10. That's one of the proof texts that's given. It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therewith with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, that is, in Christ, dwelleth all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are made full, ye are complete, ye are made full in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And so in this passage, it, it talks to us of our union with Christ and our being in Christ, and in Christ we are complete. As Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We have been made full. We have been filled up in him. And so in Christ we have spiritually all we need. We don't need to seek that from another place. We don't need to seek our emotional and our spiritual satisfaction from another source. We have it in him. And that's part of our mindset as we're thinking during the Lord's table. Trusting in Christ merits. Um, this is the opposite of trusting in your own merits. Uh, we're not saved by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's only because of what he has done for us. Rejoicing in Christ's love, that's F. Well, this was a love that was from eternity past, obviously, the love of Christ for us as people. But as we're meditating on the bread and the blood and Christ broken for us and his visage marred more than any man and all of those things are going through our mind, what love it is that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Greater love hath no man than this that he would do such a thing. And so we rejoice in Christ's love for us as people and that's part of our meditation as part of the exercise of these graces. G, giving thanks for Christ's grace. Well, salvation obviously is all of grace. But it's a gracious act that the Lord did in giving us something to remember him by. I think I've made the point, Pastor Kimbrough has made the point, I've heard other preachers make the point that there's a sense in which when Christ says, this do in remembrance of me, there's a little tiny bit of that that is just a gentle rebuke. You know, if, if somebody physically saved your life, you know, jumped in front of a bus and pushed you out of the way, are you ever going to forget that? Well, chances are no. But yet for Christ to say, here, I'm leaving this for you because I know the sinfulness of human flesh and I know that you're, you'd be liable to forget. I'm going to leave you something to remember. And so this do in remembrance of me. So even that is a gracious act on the part of Christ in leaving us this to remember him by. Um, we'll get too far afield here, but you remember when we have talked previously about the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image the likeness of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. We're not, we're not to make any graven image of Christ. That's not talking about idolatry. That's not talking about Buddha. 
The first commandment already dealt with Buddha. The second commandment is dealing with a physical representation of Jehovah, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. We're not to make any graven image to assist us in our worship. So the crucifix, you know, that's a, a primary example. The crucifix is out. It is a graven image that is used specifically as an aid to worship. So we don't use those. Well, but Christ has given us a physical symbol, a physical thing, the, the bread and the cup. And we don't worship those. And in that sense, they're not graven images left for us. But it is something left for us, something tangible that the Lord has left for us to use to aid us in our worship. And so we give thanks for what Christ has given to us. H is renewing our covenant with God. This is not being saved all over again, but in that sense, renewing the, the vows, the promises that we've made to the Lord to, to serve him, to deliver him, to walk by faith and not by sight, etc. This is the same thing that we were encouraged to do in preparing for the Lord's table. In contemplating the Lord's table coming up, we are renewing our commitment to serve the Lord. Well, in the midst of it, we are renewing our commitment to serve the Lord. And you might not be surprised to know that next week we're going to be talking about renewing our commitment to serve the Lord after the Lord's table. You know, this is all part of it. And then the last one, love to all saints. Um, we're told in Scripture that it is a litmus test of conversion. By this, uh, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so that's, again, one of the things that we're meditating on, thinking about as we, we, we fellowship together. This is part of the communion together. We're, we're in this together. We're fellowshipping, communing together around the Lord's table. And we, we love one another. We're for one another. And so I trust this will be helpful. And then next week, as I've already said, we'll come to what to do after the Lord's table and some practical instruction there as well. So let's close in prayer for now. Our Father, we do thank you for these instructions, uh, even from the larger catechism. But as we search the scriptures, we find these practical admonitions and directions to be agreeable to what the scriptures have taught us. And so we pray that you would help us to think rightly. Uh, so much of this really does come down to our thinking and our understanding and a matter of our perspective in these things. And not allowing our minds to wander and focus on other things, but an aspect of self-discipline focusing on you and what you've done for us. So we pray that you'll bless us. Be with us as we go into the worship service here in a few moments. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.